0: A lot of times, I mean, you think about somebody who's been in a cult situation and taught that, um, first of all, you think this, you behave this way, you talk this way, you don't talk that way, you talk to these people, but not these people, you know, all of those things. um, When you leave that environment and you're out in the world, it can, how terrifying is that to even interact with others, right? To, um, to do anything on your own without that umbrella. And so interpersonal effectiveness teaches some practical and some really, really helpful ways to communicate with each other.
1: Hi, Cult Hackers, and welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Matha, Organizational psychologist, former member of a high control group, and one of the hosts of this podcast. Today, we bring you an interview we recorded what seems like way back in August in the summer of this year. Jolyn Armstrong. Jolyn is a certified trauma recovery coach. And she has a very interesting perspective on trauma, which includes the trauma of experiencing a son becoming incarcerated as well as dealing with her own religious trauma. So we talk about a wide variety of subjects, including making friends after leaving a cult, making sense of life in the world and the similarity between the experience of a family member going to prison and those who are coerced into disfellowshipping their sons, daughters, relatives and so on. We also get to talk about JoLynn's coaching approach, her new book and how she thinks we can find a way to recovery. You can find the link to her website on the show notes. So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. I bring you Jolyn Armstrong. Welcome JoLynn.
0: Hi there, Stephen and Celine. It's such a pleasure to be here.
1: Great. It's really great to have you with us. Brilliant. Well, um, I suppose the first thing we'd like to know is a little bit about you. Uh, We met through the virtual ICSA conference, I think. Um, I'm still managing to talk to all those people I met at that conference. It was definitely worth going. Um, So we spoke at at that and we've had another little chat. But um, if you'd like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and why you're interested in this area.
0: Sure. Yeah. And and thank you for the opportunity. Um, that was a great conference. I, I very much enjoyed it. So (laughs) I met a lot of super interesting people as well. Um, Yeah, I, so I, like you said, I'm a certified trauma recovery coach. Um, I got into this field after some pretty heavy trauma in my life, um, that uncovered other trauma as well, which I think we happens right (laughs) with, with, um, when people are traumatized, it, it, I'm like, wait a minute, what about, this is ringing true from a, from the past as well. So, um, Learning myself to get through, a, you know, a, a serious trauma that I went through, I realized um, the population that I was in and the kind of trauma that I had was it's a population of people that really needed some attention and some help also getting through that. And so, uh, I just took a deep dive and started studying and, and, um, ultimately received that, um, you know, earned the, the certification and have been working with trauma survivors ever since. So that's me kind of in a nutshell. <laughs> Very
1: good. So, yeah. um, obviously yeah. you can tell us as much or as little as you want to about, um, mm-hmm. your particular, uh, sort of situation but I know there's a couple of sort of areas that you're particularly interested in one is around religious trauma and the other mm-hmm. is around helping people whose family members might be incarcerated so um, and I think you know you, you did talk about that to me that you have personal okay. experience in those things so um, again as much as or as little as you want to talk about but um, I guess that might be relevant
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah, definitely. It's, it might feel when you, when you hear those kind of two groups of people, (laughs) it might feel like, like what in the world is, how does that happen? But um, the reality is kind of through my experiences. So I'll just, I'll go back a little bit and talk about um, maybe that would be helpful Mm -hmm. to talk about, you know, where I dove in first and what, you know, what that Um, process has been like. So I had been, my husband and I together own a successful marketing business. We had been um, marketing and business coaches um, for a while and had been training mostly home services business, people who, you know, flooring companies, window covering companies, those you know, the like, um, home services. So we would coach and train them on how to market their businesses and how to kind of organize their businesses. And oddly enough, we had a, um, some of our top clients, we had a, a two day intensive planned in Las Vegas, and it was probably 10 days before this two day intensive. I, as cell phones do, they don't always ring. I look at my phone and I've got four missed calls from a number I didn't recognize and I thought what the heck I listened to the voicemails and it were all four calls were um from a jail <laughs> in oh, Colorado okay. and um you know an inmate in a jail and I went oh my goodness and it turned out that out of the blue, you know, one of my three adult sons who was in the military at the time, completely upstanding citizen, had been arrested and charged with a serious, very serious crime and uh, or cluster of crimes, actually. So that kind of turned my world upside Mm -hmm. down. (laughs) That was my first kind of initial like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And so through that experience, you know, just long story short, my son did wind up being convicted and spent uh, about four years in prison in the U.S. in Colorado. And um, it was through that experience that I re- like that was my real introduction with a sudden intense trauma, um, realizing that that affected every piece of my life. Like every my business was impacted, as you can imagine trying to hold a two day intensive for your top marketing clients. It was that, that was an experience. Um, so going through that, you know, my, my business, obviously my marriage, my relationships with family members, the whole, like in every piece of my life that, that you can imagine. So, um, first kind of healing myself through that, And then learning, like, what needs to be learned about trauma. Probably more of us need to at least have a baseline (laughs) understanding of what that is and what goes on. Um, And then further down the road, I... um, my parents got very ill. Both of my parents at the same time caught COVID and it actually really intensely impacted my father's health, especially, um, both of his mental health and his physical health. And working through that with my family, we wound up having to put them, both of my parents together into an Alzheimer's, like a locked facility just to keep them safe. Mm. And, I realized through that experience, I had completely separated myself from my family or from most of my family through most of my adult life. And that was because of my separation from the religion that I was born into, right, that I was raised in. And so that kind of ties back into, uh, you know, all of all of that years later, it was probably, you know, 20 years before this happened that I had left that religion and had all the fallout with my family and became kind of a, you know, even left the area that they lived in just to kind of get away from that, Mm. uh, which is a common thing that we hear with uh, religious trauma survivors. So that whole experience getting back, kind of being involved with my family brought to mind and kind of like to the forefront, the effects of religious trauma less intense, but a longer period of time in my life and what that looked like. And so, you know, bringing that into kind of discovery and studying a little bit more about that and what religious trauma looks like and the effects that it has, I realized that, you know, families um, like mine who have kind of a sudden jolt into the prison world have a how do I say this? There's a perspective change that happens. Like I thought that I had my world and my life and the world figured out a little bit. And, you know, here are the good people in the world and there are the not so great people in the world. And we want to stay away from this. You know what I mean? We have these ideas in our heads about, um, specifically in this case, people who go to prison or people who support people who go to prison. Right. And, um, The reality that in the religious world, a lot of times we, you know, there are very similar mindsets. And when a person is leaving a very high demand religion or a cult where mindsets are really forced on them, um, the realization that, oh, my gosh, wait a minute. These others aren't aren't what I thought they were. So there's a yeah, there's a lot of that um, kind of topsy turvy. My my every every belief I thought I had is, you know, I is called into question is very similar in those two groups of people, oddly enough. Yeah. (laughs) Did,
2: um, do you think having already left a high, high control, high demand religious group, um, made that kind of realization shift easier or more difficult for you when you went through what you did with um, your son, and like that whole thing you were just talking about, like change in perspective and things like
0: that. Yeah, there was um, this happens with trauma a lot. There was a familiarity that maybe others don't have. So um, I would say yes in that perspective, although I didn't, ha- I hadn't identified it fully. Um, from, for myself, um, my version of leaving the high demand religion was very slow and gradual and it wasn't, uh, there was never an aha moment for me or like a shelf break. Like a Mm. lot of people talk about, um, for me, it was just like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right. Oh, wait a minute. That doesn't seem right. And I'm not the kind of person that this religion is making me feel like I I am right so it was all very slow so there was a little bit less I mean just because the the push into the um prison world was so (laughs) sudden for me it's a little bit different but yeah I I see what you mean Celine yeah
1: the the contrast is is more about I suppose that that jolt as opposed to this slow process but um Mm -hmm. I guess you reflecting on it you're starting to see yeah actually some of those things are are quite similar actually and um yeah i think that's mm-hmm. very interesting I mean, it's one of the the reasons for this podcast is this um this feeling when you leave a high control group that because you know your your world your worldview your the way you construct reality is all built around this religion this this way of thinking about everything and everything is seen through that lens and mm-hmm. you're told essentially what what you should think about everything from politics to the way you dress to sexuality and everything and of course when you and of course as you alluded to the way you should think about people in the world because when you leave then yeah you're everything's kind of up for grabs again and it's it's actually quite Uh, disorienting. So yeah, I think that's, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, In in your, so you, you you allowed me a sneak preview of your book, which we'll talk a bit more about, which Mm -hmm. is great. Um, And, in that uh, that book, and I think on your website as well, you you know you you look at definitions because I think we all we all struggle with this sometimes, you know. So let's get those out out of the way first. I think the the trauma one is perhaps the most important for our conversation today. So when when we talk about trauma, as far as you're concerned, what what are we talking about?
0: Sure. I think that's really important. You're right to get, um, that definition down and a few others as well, because, um, one thing that holds a lot of trauma survivors back, wherever the trauma comes from is, wait a minute, I'm not traumatized. Like I, and this happened with me, my son was in the military, the U S military when he was arrested. And, um, you know, at my husband kept telling me like, Tolan, you've got, there's something going on with you. This is not you, right? You, I think you've, there's some, some trauma happening or whatever. And I'm like, no, I've, I've seen like soldiers coming back from war. That's trauma. Mm -hmm. I'm not traumatized. Right. Um, and it, it took a bit of study and realization before I was able to even accept that and then start the healing process. So thanks for the question. I think, um, There, trauma kind of happens a little bit on a a spectrum, much like other things do as well. But there are really three main elements that I can identify when emotional trauma happens. And one is that there is an outside circumstance or um, event that is completely out of your control that is overwhelming to your system. So that external event outside of your control and overwhelms your ability to to deal with it are those three kind of elements um, that exist with emotional trauma. So that's why one person can go through something identical to the next. And, you know, one person is traumatized by that event and the other person isn't right. It's just it's where where is your kind of emotional gas tank at that point, and how does that hit you? What are past events in your life that have kind of set you up for um, some susceptibility to trauma and and all of it? So it's difficult to predict if an event is going to traumatize you you can kind of see the elements that are you know and maybe avoid elements or or circumstances that may lend towards a traumatic event but it's really yeah it's it's insidious in that way that there's kind of these different elements that
1: yeah you kind of combine you nicely um uh, you you probably said all this in 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 your answer but you you uh you isolate them into three specific ele- elements mm-hmm. in, in your book, which I think is quite interesting. So mm-hmm. one is this outside event um, that happens mm-hmm. to you. Uh, the second one is that the individual has no control over it. And the third mm-hmm. one is the individual's beliefs about and interactions with themselves and the world are changed by the event or circumstance. So that's very mm-hmm. good. It it's kind of captures... Mm-hmm. I think uh, I'm not an expert myself in trauma, but it seems to capture um, <laughs> yeah. what I think about when I when I think about trauma. Um, okay, sure. that's great. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that?
0: Um, no, I think I think that that's it. I think that that's that's pretty concise there. And again, just the realization that it it doesn't you don't have to be. Hmm it doesn't have to be a one time event. It can be a series of events. It can't, you know, something that's overwhelming, that's outside your control is, um, and changes your worldview. It's, it's, I think people, people start to think, okay, well, soldiers at war that see these, you know, these specific things, that's what causes it. And it's not necessarily what the event is. It's how you react to it. I suppose
2: yeah. that's why I don't, I mean, that the word complex is used as well as no when talking about like but not you know trauma and post-traumatic stress are different obviously but you have got complex which encompasses when it's like prolonged or um going through things repeatedly isn't it and that gives you mm-hmm. um it's a different experience to if it's uh, like a one-time event isn't it where you can experience like prolonged effects um, or prolonged situations that cause these effects as well if i'm correct in thinking <laughs>
0: Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a great point you're making. Mm -hmm. You're right that, you know, a lot of times, um, when we're trying to differentiate between experiences, a sudden extreme event that happens often can cause trauma. Complex trauma is something that often happens over time, like childhood trauma. When, you know, people who experience prolonged childhood trauma wind up with a diagnosis later in life of complex PTSD. Um, the same can happen in a prolonged, you know, religious experience where they're in a harmful um religion or organization that that kind of drips this on them over time.
1: Yeah. So, so the other mm-hmm. thing I wanted to talk about perhaps or just to sort of frame what we're talking about here is is that you're coming at this as a trauma coach. Um mm-hmm. I, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, as opposed to a mental health professional. So this is this is not, um, well, maybe you could help us to sort of make sure we understand the difference between that and at what point you would say, mm-hmm. right, you need some, uh, the, uh, in, the best advice I can give you is to seek some uh, professional mental health counselling or something like that. How, how do you sort of manage that?
0: Sure. Yeah. Great, great question there too. Yeah. So I, in my kind of educational journey, I had to make a decision. Am I going to become a, you know, a therapist? Am I going to seek, um, licensure there or take a coaching route or what, what? Yeah. So, Um, a lot of things went into my decision to, um, work as a coach rather than a therapist. And one of those is, it has to do with the way coaches work versus therapy. And that is, um, coaching. We work more on a, um, not peer, but almost kind of a peer mentor Hmm. level. I'm able to really connect, share my story and, um, kind of get in the mud with my clients. Right. <laughs> so rather than rather than a, a therapist maintains a really um, lovely professional boundary, they are the expert there. It's more like going to a physician versus a personal trainer. Or a physical therapist, sure. right? If you look at that on the on the um, physical side of things, so um, that that professional distance is super super helpful when people have mental disorders, mental conditions that require um, a real kind of authoritative hand to help them through. And hey, you need let's let's get you into you know doing this or behaving in this way or um, you know taking this medication or whatever. Um, diagnoses are are very serious things that need to, um, happen only from a person, you know, coming from a person that has had that kind of background and can, has the education there to diagnose something. I don't diagnose anything. I, I see symptoms and I help people with symptoms and I work with them to, um, heal that first, you know, to, to relieve some of those symptoms and then to heal that moving forward. Um, So another thing too, in the, in the U S anyway, um, this is changing a little bit, but therapists are really confined to their kind of, you know, their area of the country, their state that they live in and are unable to reach out and help people in other areas. And so being a coach allows me to help those that don't live right near me. So I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 So that was a big, um, that was a a big part of my decision as well. That, and just the, I think with trauma, especially, um, the need for connection because trauma divides us. Trauma causes oftentimes people to shut in on themselves, to isolate themselves and a huge healing part of um, from trauma is that connection with another person who really gets you and understands what you've been through and can kind of meet you where you're at. And so coaching that modality allows for that a lot more than therapy does. So, so having said that, if I am working with someone who um, a mental illness exists or, or becomes like, I become suspicious that there may be a more serious mental illness that needs to maybe be help, you know, managed or, um, this person needs help with that. I will definitely suggest that. And, um, I have a whole criteria around that, that I work with my clients on. Um, and there are a number of people that I work right alongside their therapist and I'll work with coaching specifically in this area and their therapist, um, helps them with the, um, the things that they specialize in. So Uh,
1: from my, uh, my experience of, of coaching, I think the other thing that, um, you kind of have an assumption is that they have um, – so this would obviously be different if there is a mental health um, condition that they need some of that help. But other, what you're doing as a coach is you're assuming that they, they have the tools, if you like, to be able to um, deal with this, to be able to find a way through it. And so as a coach, you're um, walking by the side of them, helping them to – go through that process and to find ways of getting to where they want to be to, to achieve their goals, whatever they may be. And they are actually determining what those goals are because that's what a coach does. So, yeah, it, it sounds like a really mm. nice way of helping someone um, without obviously having to deal with, with areas that, that, you know, you, you you just don't want to get into or perhaps are not qualified to to deal with so yeah that sounds really responsible way of doing it and um, yeah it makes a lot of sense
2: I suppose as well it depends on how much someone feels that depending on their mode or like feeling at the time if they want to deal with like you're saying dealing with the symptoms if they're like this is the particular thing I want to deal with or if they feel like they don't know what's causing it and they need to go find out if you know what I mean I guess that will help determine mm what kind of support they need and I suppose what you might recommend for them as well.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So well I'll give you an example. Um, I'm working with, um, a woman right now who has given me permission to talk about this. So I'll just tell you that, but, um, she came to me, like a lot of my clients come to me oddly, um, or maybe not as oddly, but they, I wind up working with people years and years after they leave, Uh, high demand religion or a cult. It's, you know, after their, their initial exit, they go through what they're going to go through and it's different, a little bit different for, um, for different people, but you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, they're like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. My life has, like all of these things are going wrong in my life or have been going wrong in my life. What in the world? And is it tied back to this experience from before, right? And so this woman I'm working with now has, um, she, the religion that she was, um, born into she never felt like she believed them she you know it was i'm being lied to even as a very young person i you know and it, and that led to a real distrust in her life of adults, of um, people in authority, of kind of anything group think and so she led a really non kind of unconventional life for that reason, although she didn't realize it all through life. But one way it affected her life was you know, she went through one marriage after another after another marriages being taught when she was in this religion as being hugely important and you must get married to one person for the rest of your life and you know, if this religion lied to me about all of these other things, well, they've lied to me about this too. And so she never saw any kind of a importance or benefit really of marriage, except in the short term. And so she came to me for marriages in saying, wait a minute, what, what have I done? <laughs> right. <laughs> what has happened in my life? And so, you know, a lot of our work together has been unpackaging where, you know, where these beliefs have come from, what her beliefs actually are and what's accurate and what's inaccurate. And so it took a lot of, you know, and through this process of just exploring this one area of her life, she learned critical thinking skills. She has, um, you know, expanded her worldview and all of, you know, all of these other things happen when we're dealing with this one area of her life. Um, And this is an area where, and a relationship where I can see, okay, this is a mentally healthy person sure. who has been, you know, because of this one circumstance, it has just had these ripple effects in her life. Um, so I'm happy to work with her independently and not refer her on for sure. any kind of, you know, more intensive therapy.
1: So. And, um, the, the technique that you talk about in your book is called dialectical behavioral therapy. Do you- BT. So, uh, maybe you mm-hmm. could tell us a little bit about what that is, please. Join in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I work a lot with that, not completely, but, um, dialectical behavioral therapy is kind of a branch of cognitive behavioral therapy. If you've heard of that, mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of mindset control and, um, you know, your, your thinking affects your behaviors, affects your thoughts and your emotions. And, um, so it is, you know, taking another look at different parts, different perspectives of what your worldview is, what your thoughts on yourself are and others and relationships. Um, Dialectical behavioral therapy adds in a healthy dose of mindfulness to that Um, and was developed, um, I want to say in the seventies, I could get that wrong, but I think it was in the seventies by Marsha Linehan, who is just an, an amazing therapist. Um, DBT has really been shown. She uses it a lot and and a, a lot in the, um, therapy world use DBT for me with a trauma perspective, um, using DBT and, and in that kind of, reshaping of a worldview that has been tainted by trauma or even you know like the the long-term effects especially of religious trauma. Uh DBT is super, super helpful with that. One thing it doesn't help with is the the connection that is so important. So I use that as one of the modes of um coaching, but um connection is connection and safety actually are two other really important kind of cogs in that wheel. Hmm, okay. <laughs> so
1: Cool. So I, I, so I guess you're taking principles from this therapeutic, um, method and using it for coaching as a, as a kind of tool to, to be able to, uh, structure what you're doing, I guess.
0: Absolutely. And it's super helpful. Um, when you're, when you are realizing in your life, you know, I've been taught all of these things or, or forced to believe all of these things, right. Mm. Um, through one experience or another, um, uh, using these tools to help kind of reshape that thinking is really, really beneficial.
2: If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it by becoming a patron. You can support the podcast for just one pound or a dollar fifty and receive a variety of Patreon benefits as a thank you. Don't forget to share the podcast, follow, like, subscribe and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using. A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some cult hacking you've been involved in, or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our cult hackers. Thank you for listening. And now back to the podcast.
1: And um, hmm. you, you talked uh, briefly there about these four modules. Um, do you want to uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about that too so you've got four modules that uh, i think sit inside this dbt umbrella um and you you talk about how they're very useful do you want to just tell us a little bit about that mindfulness is one of them
0: so yeah mindfulness is one like like i said that this is what um dbt adds um in addition to what you know cognitive behavioral therapy does um but yeah a traditional dbt Um, model will walk um, participants through these four modules. Um, Distress tolerance is one of the first ones that I work with folks on. um, That just really helps, you know, when you are traumatized and you're your nervous system is on fire, screaming. You're super activated. These distress tolerance skills are super, super helpful. So you've, you've probably heard of just grounding exercises. You know, some of the deep breathing exercises. Those are all kind of fall under the distress tolerance umbrella.
1: So this is just to clarify for, for myself, really. Um, so distress mm-hmm. tolerance is the ability to hope when you feel gut starts to have these feelings of distress and you're yeah. you're helping people with some techniques to manage that is that is that right
0: Yeah. Not just that, like manage, um, these big emotions that you start to feel when you are traumatized, when you're really, really stressed, uh, but also helping prevent our emotions from getting it kind of out of control as well. So maintaining that too. And that goes a a little bit more into emotion regulation as well. So both of those things work together a little bit to, um, I think a lot of times what we do, um, when we feel kind of what we determine as negative emotions, right. Or that more uncomfortable emotions, people tend to run from them, especially when it's really intense and, Oh no, I never, I just never want to, you know, feel those. What distress tolerance especially does is it allows us to, um, keep them at a manageable level so that we can sit with them mm-hmm. because that's really what's important when you're healing from trauma is to be able to sit in those uncomfortable places and, um, kind of work through them instead of run from them. Mm. I thought, yeah. had a um,
2: friend describe it once as like, or like I think they were doing like a coaching sort of session actually. Um, but like a group kind of session and, um, Mm-hmm. they' so they were trying to give an example of like how to I guess yeah become comfortable with the uncomfortable and um mm-hmm. basically, they described it as like if you have a beach ball and you're in a pool and you keep trying to force it under the water, you're gonna really, really struggle and it's gonna keep forcing itself back up on you. But if you just let it mm-hmm. pop off and like you know just push it away, you'll still see it, but it will be like smaller and it will drift further away from you, so it can be there um Hmm. just you know you've got to get used to it and let it just be there um in your peripheral doesn't even you don't have to be your focus but if you keep trying to force it down you're just gonna you're gonna think about nothing but that thing so is it kind of that that situation
0: that is a beautiful description of that actually yeah (laughs) yeah because <laughs> totally. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. If you trying to force those emotions away, just really never works. And we wind up just extending that trauma experience uh-huh. for sure. Uh-huh. So being able to um, really tolerate that um, and sit with them and work through them, be curious about them instead of fearful of them um, is, is super helpful and distress tolerance helps with that. So,
1: and and then the, the fourth module is this interpersonal effectiveness. Um, Mm. so yeah, tell us what that means, please.
0: Yeah. So interpersonal effectiveness, a lot of times, I mean, you think about somebody who's been in a cult situation and taught that, um, first of all, you think this, you behave this way, you talk this way, you don't talk that way. You talk to these people, but not these people you know, all of those things. um, When you leave that environment and you're out in the world, it can, how terrifying is that to even interact with others, right? To, um, To do anything on your own without that umbrella. And so interpersonal effectiveness teaches some practical and some Really, really helpful ways to communicate with each other. I mean, it's it's that simple. Like it, you know, it walks through a series of exercises that um, help negotiate um, things that you want or stop things from happening that you don't want and really teaches people in a practical way just, you know, how to say what's in their heart and on their minds and um, how to operate in the world that without the script that they have been given huh. by. Yeah organizations or religions right
1: so yeah actually one of the things that um i I, we keep meaning to talk about this as a kind of standalone episode really but um maybe you've got some thoughts on this is about friendships um Mm -hmm. so i think when we've talked about it in my experience you know we i was encouraged to really only have friends that were part of my religious group and um to stay away from those worldly people, those people in the world, they're dangerous, you know? Um, so you have this um, restriction, but it, it, even so, because I was like third generation and very was steeped in in it, I did have a lot of friends within the congregation because, you know, I'd grown up with these people. So um, I had very, very strong friendships, or I felt I did, within the congregation. Um, it turns out to be not quite so strong Mm -hmm. actually when you leave but I felt that I had these strong connections Um, and then obviously when you leave you lose all of those friends that you thought were so important to you and trying to I think I went through a bit of a phase of probably coming across a bit desperate really with work colleagues and you know sort of trying to build a new network of friends Um, that was Mm -hmm. really really important to me um and yeah I think that that was quite difficult it was difficult for me and I think it was actually probably quite difficult for people around me uh is that a common problem
0: uh yeah yeah can you imagine so did you feel like in any way that there was maybe in this something wrong with you that hold on hold on a minute I I don't I can't make friends I don't have it like maybe the religion was the only reason i had friends at all and there's something missing here right i
1: think i think so and um and also i think for a lot of us who leave um so the, the the age of 30 is a very interesting age i don't know whether you come across this but the age of 30 seems to be either you leave kind of in your teenage years when people tend to be a bit rebellious yeah, so a lot of a lot of people leave around that age of thirty, I think. If you make it through mm-hmm. adolescence and you carry on, it's kind of thirty is the next sort of phase in your life in a way. Um, and so when you leave then, especially if it's a high control group where you're not allowed to sort of do things in the world, when you when you leave, you you're kind of quite young in your mentality in some respects. So you haven't really lived very much. And I so I kind of wanted to hang around with people that were you know were kind of younger than me um people mm-hmm. in their 20s and so on because I suppose I identified with them more you know I, I'd i never been out to, to pubs and clubs and you know I'd never really had much of a life so I kind of wanted to hang around yeah. with people who wanted to do that and they they were mostly younger than me so I think that also was quite difficult I felt like a fish out of water in that respect and also you know people might think it's a bit weird, you know, what does this old bloke want to hang around with us for? You know, and it's kind of, uh, it is kind of difficult. You feel really um, out of place, I think. You're out of place for so many reasons. That can be because obviously your belief system's changed or you don't have many friends or, as I say, because you're kind of trying to pick up your life um, at a point where, chronologically you probably don't quite fit so I don't know if that makes any sense but I think that if, if other people have had that experience then it wouldn't surprise me
0: <laughs> right well I, I will tell you that's it's not unique to you sure. that is something that happens for for real reasons right you um those who are not in such a high demand high control environment Get to make mistakes, get to learn um, interactions without that kind of structure. Mm. All of those mm. things, and so no, you're not alone in that. <laughs> and I hope you've come through that relatively unscathed. It seems like you have.
1: Yeah, it I'm, I'm like an old matter. man now, so I I, um, I don't care about <laughs> friends anymore. <laughs> no, you've got them.
2: The boys now, aren't you? Yeah, no, it, it's nah. <laughs> I'm just
1: uh, being flippant, which is what I do. But um mm. yeah, I, it's it's funny. Mm-hmm. um Yeah, I, I, think, I think that the levels, moment,
2: isn't
1: yeah, the there's moment I stopped worrying about it quite so much and decided <laughs> that yeah, you know, I don't need that many friends. I've got one or two people that are close to me, and I've, obviously I'm married, and I, you know, I've got got my my daughter Celine, and actually that's really what's mm-hmm. important um and then i think the pressure was off and so you know then then you you do start to build really important relationships i've got some friends who are as close as i need them to be if you like you know we we chat um, Mm -hmm. on whatsapp every now and again um we just went to a beer festival together which was really fun and that's great you know that kind of that kind of works i think for all of us so yeah that's Mm -hmm. but it it took a bit of time i think to get to that to that place
2: the, the reason i think as well it's a bit multi-layered is that um like i said a when you get older it's like there's less chances where you're all new and you're all just going for it you know and like the yeah. the no fear let's just make friends like when you first go to uni and everyone's just desperate to make friends so you're all desperate together um <laughs> and also um i know it is like a thing isn't it where they say it's um there's there's a big push about um male loneliness and like men just generally not having as many friends um as women or not having as much support network as women in general there's been some like studies and talks on that um so you know you up against a um a series of things there so but well done you made it out you've got friends you went to the beer festival oh <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, yeah it's It's nothing to shake a stick at, though, because it it actually is a really um, it's a disorienting um, situation that happens there. And it's something that can really destroy self-esteem when you, you know, especially those um, religions who teach you that. Anything negative in your life is your fault. You lack you lack something, whether that's faith or whatever. So what am I lacking now that I can't make friends, right? That's where your mind immediately goes to when you've been in a, in a situation like that, especially through your formative years. Um, but Think about it this way, too, though. I think a little bit, maybe, Stephen, what you were describing, um, tell me if this rings true a little bit, is when you're in these groups like that, in these religions especially, it's your friends. Friendship pool is like this, um, wide, but shallow pond. And now what you have is more of like a well of really deep, um, good, you know, it's a smaller in circumference, but it's much deeper, more fulfilling, um, group of friends. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I
1: I believe that I had a brotherhood all around the world, Mm. um, and Mm. You know, I I really believe that you could go to any country in the world, and if you went to the Kingdom Hall, you'd meet fellow Jehovah's Witness and they would you would be able to trust them. You'd be able to go to their home, and they'd put you up for the night. And uh, you know that that was the um, the world I thought I lived in. But you know, actually, mm-hmm. you, you you become aware that it, even then it wasn't quite like that. But that's the way that you kind of. Saw it, so yeah, of course, um, it's hard to beat that. Really, when you leave, you, you know, it's hard to actually yeah. think. Well, how do I, how do I do that? You know, how do I rebuild that worldwide brotherhood thing? You know, that's really difficult to rebuild. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, well, and when when you think about that too, like how can I rebuild this worldwide brotherhood? the reality is you don't, you mm. don't need that. Number one, you don't need that, even though you've been lied to and told yeah. that you do. Um, and, and number two, it's, you know, that the whole thought of, uh, oh my gosh, do I even have it in me to, to connect with anyone? Right. Mm. Cause I was able to connect with all these people, but now I'm not like, what's yeah. the deal here? So
1: yeah,
0: absolutely. I think
2: as well, the, the nice thing that a lot of people have said to us is like the realization that often people are good so you thought you had like a very select group of like this you know brotherhood of good people but it's actually like often people are good you know like um we've had a lot of a lot of um stories of people being like you know when i needed someone it wasn't them that came to me it was just you know random neighbor or Mm -hmm. you know just Mm -hmm. someone off the street saw you know, you know circumstance, circumstances, if you see someone upset in the street, you'll go and say, like, are you okay? Or, like, if someone looks confused, are you lost? You know, people are people are generally good. And, you know, I think people do talk about that in the interviews and that realisation process, and I think that maybe makes things a bit smoother because you realise that everyone isn't scary and quote-unquote quite worldly, as the word <laughs> often is used. Um, people are actually quite nice, and you'll probably make, meet people and, you know build connections and that that moment is you know one. I think I remember one of our friends being like I don't realize people were actually quite nice actually <laughs> you know
0: and it's like yeah right. it'll be okay <laughs> yeah that's amazing I, I think we see a kind of a a joking mentality about adults making friends in the world. I, I think post pandemic, there's been a lot of that, like, Oh, I don't Like, how do I even make friends <laughs> yes. now? I'm working from home, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, but the reality is when you face that as an adult, um, coming out of uh, a high demand religion, I, Steven, I do not, um, discount what you went through because yeah, sitting at, you know, joking aside, sitting at home alone at night after another failed attempt at just trying to make a friend and they, you know, the interaction not going well, it can be devastating. And so, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal.
1: Yeah. I think, I think, um, it can, I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to obviously say that I still feel I was quite lucky and that I had, you know, I have my family to support me. So, but I think, you know, again, lots of people don't have that. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that you might have fairly young people um, essentially out, isolated. And, you know, that's that's a really scary place to be, I think, um, yeah. if you're, you know, in your, your sort of late teens, early twenties, and and you find yourself with, you know, your families stop talking to you, stop supporting you. You've got no real friends because of, the religion you you belong to yeah that's um that's a real that is a reality for far too many people and one of the reasons that you know sh- that the practice of shunning is one of those right at the top there of the things that groups need to stop doing <laughs> um you know it is it is a, yeah. is a, an appalling practice um and we're not mm. talking here about just people falling out and not talking to each other. That's different. We're talking about mandated shunning from the religion itself that actually tells right. people not to talk to you. Um, I i wasn't actually the um, recipient of that either, which again makes me the lucky one. But many people are, unfortunately. So yeah, it's it's a serious problem. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, in Jehovah's Witnesses, I've seen families torn apart mm. with that. It's Oh my gosh. Yeah. How... How they think that's okay. <laughs> the thing is, jo, that, you but.
1: know, I, I've I've heard that conversation as a Jehovah's Witness, and I honestly would say, well, No, Jehovah's Witnesses don't. Nobody gets disfellowships unless mm-hmm. they want to, you know, they they yeah. made the decision themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say that, do you really believe it? I I, I thought I did at the time, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You also obviously hate doing the shunning thing. I have walked past people in the street and just not talked to them, even though I've known them mm. for years. Um, and you feel awful about it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a very unnatural mm. state of affairs.
2: Yeah. Like our interview with Alicia has got to be one of the most mm. um, difficult ones regarding shunning. She was, you know, expecting um, yeah. like how she was pregnant and they're talking about her, being pregnant to her mum while she's present, but ignoring her. Yes. You know, and saying, How's she getting on? And she's there, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's very, very mm-hmm. strange. You can understand why you need some trauma. Um I'm just thinking
1: about
0: <laughs> <that>. yes. <exactly. laughs> some, you know, yeah. support afterwards.
1: Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and to be taught that you're doing that out of love. Yes. No, this is out of love, right? We're helping and um yeah, that that part of it too and then when you come out of it thinking wow I believed that mm. like wait a minute and I was part what's of it. again yeah what's wrong with me that I believed it that I did that that I was okay with it or maybe even I wasn't okay but I still did it. So there's a whole that yeah that whole mind shift that happens and
1: uh, and Jolyon, um th- this is actually quite interesting probably never have a better chance to talk about this um this mm-hmm. intersection between uh the, the 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 whole religious trauma and the parents of people who have been incarcerated um mm-hmm. disfellowshipping is very much like being incarcerated and the the if if the parents are, are witnesses they are very much in the in a situation where i mean i'm i'm assuming that this is the case but i think from my observations it would be you know if your daughter or your son has been disfellowshipped it it is like they've gone to prison
0: mm.
1: It, mm. they must feel the same sort of feelings of of grief and fear and trauma as as somebody whose child has has gone to prison and and to make it worse they can't even visit them to make it worse right. they have to cut them off themselves so yeah. think of the trauma involved in that experience for the parents who are shunning mm-hmm. their their family members um at, on the one hand but on the other are are feeling like like mum at home when their son is in in prison.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah and and thinking I have to do this painful awful thing to my own child yeah. my adult or adult or otherwise right mm. um and separate myself from them i can't they're not dead but they're not in my life so it's this in-between place Mm. and and also oh i'm fearing for their mortal soul Mm, (laughs) through this process too Mm. so yeah it's i i can see how um those things really do intersect um with the shunning the you know Maybe a small difference in the prison world is the, the parent has no control over or limited control over that mm. whole process and their access to their loved one. But, um,
1: but that's well, the whole I nature, know. I mean, that's the whole nature of coercive yeah. control. You know, the fact is, you as a parent, yeah. you'd feel that you don't have that, um, Truth. power that because yeah. you, you that's being denied you, you're told. That if you want to stay faithful to Jehovah and if you want to bring them back, then the mm-hmm. way to show love to them is by doing that shunning. So yeah, I would yeah probably argue that actually it would feel much the same, um, very much the same. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're right.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's it is an insidious practice. Mm. You know, we it, it's it's um, so incredibly harmful, and we as human beings deserve better than that. Uh, and the fact that we are able to, um, be controlled in that way at various times of our lives, it's, it's no reflection on us. I mean, I used to think it took me a long time to get away from the religion I was in, um, different from Jehovah's Witness, but very similar. Uh I thought there are some really intelligent people in that religion. It's, there's gotta be some truth to it. Right. And, um, you know, that whole belief, this is back mm-hmm. in my twenties, that, that there must be some kind of flaw personality flaw or something in a person that gets caught up in a cult. So therefore what I was in was not a cult. Right. So, that yep. whole yep. process and the mm-hmm. fact that that cults actually, um, help instill that belief system in their followers because yeah of course we're not because that's one of the reasons we're not right
1: Absolutely, yeah, um yeah, yeah. Oh, it's
0: it's such an insidious thing yeah
1: it is so before we finish tell us a little bit about your book um please jolyn and um mm. obviously has that been published yet or is it to be published shortly
0: yeah, as of as of today, we are not published yet. By the time probably anyone's hearing this, it will be yeah. we're just a couple of weeks out. Um and so it will be available on Amazon and cool. Barnes and Noble and a couple other places. I'm so cool. Yeah. So the book is trauma recovery. Um, yeah, very secretive title, right? Trauma recovery and 90 day guidebook to building a great life after trauma. Um, so this is a, you know, it's, it's part telling my story and others stories, um, and part really a journal and workbook, including a lot of DBT exercises and other exercises as well. Um, so intended to be you know a companion over a period of time while you're kind of healing from a traumatic experience or time in your life so
1: cool um so yeah Yeah. by the time our listeners get to hear this podcast Mm -hmm. i'm sure that will be available
0: (laughs) yes and
1: we absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: So I actually, um, if, if you don't mind me, t- me telling oh, your um, yeah. listeners, I created a landing page, a single landing page where, um, at, you know, any, all of all the locations of the book will be available there. Um, it's on my website the the page is uh, gvtraumarecovery.com slash think is the extension there. So if we put that link in the show notes, all of my contact information is there as well as the book and some other goodies. <laughs> so. It's really
1: cool. Um, that's really cool because it's got yeah. um, obviously the fact that you've appeared on the podcast um, and our little logo on there. So that's kind of cool though. he's ever done that before. <laughs> that's really good. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's a, our own little extension there for, for our listeners. Yeah. Cool. Well, mm-hmm. um, thank you so much for talking right. to us today. Um, about your experience yeah. and your wisdom, your knowledge, and um, obviously your mm. your book. Uh, thank you, Jolene Armstrong.
0: Thank you. Ah, thank you so much. Yes, thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Celine. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, You're
1: very Celine. welcome. <music> Cult Hackers is an Evil Sheep production.